Hello and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $127 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues Albert Grossman and Brian Lund. Albert and Brian are co-managers of ClearBridge's small cap strategy and combined have over 40 years of investment industry experience. Welcome to the studio today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the topic of today's podcast is opportunities in a shrinking small cap market. For all of you paying attention to the market so far this year, large caps have been outperforming their small cap brethren by the tune of about 7% here year to date. But if you think about September, typically September is a time of market leadership changes. Most people associate September with higher volatility and that leadership change going from cyclicals to more defensive stocks. But I think we could see a leadership change here with market caps, with small caps outperforming large cap here heading into the back half of the year. If you think about small caps, you have a couple tailwinds. Right now, there's no expectations for tax reform priced into the marketplace. You have deregulation happening, and that doesn't need congressional approval. And you also have repatriation as a potential theme driving m activity next year. But when I think about small caps, I think about significantly more opportunities in this asset class versus large and mid-cap. These opportunities are less covered. They're generally less understood business models. And that pool of opportunities has been shrinking consistently over the last 20 years. So, Albert, what's behind the falling number of public smaller companies that we see here today? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a question we've, we've dealt with for quite some time. Uh, if you look in total, the number of public companies in the United States has declined by over 50% over the last many years. Wow. Um, and it's been continuous decline. And it, it, you go back in history, there's a long cycles of... M&A as well as IPOs, and the balances go in, you can see it goes in different directions. In our opinion right now, what you've seen over the last many years is just a continuation and acceleration in many, for quite some time of just a lot of capital being available, yep. whether it be private equity company or corporate capital, at a declining cost of capital. So to put the capital to work, mergers continue to to, to be announced. We saw more today and we'll likely see more to come and uh, to us it's not a it's not a hindering factor it's something we observe it is um, one more factor what we are trying to do is pick undervalued companies among the small cap universe and yes the universe has shrunk but yet relative to the somewhat concentrated fund that we tend to manage our strategy normally has 70 to 90 positions. Okay. We haven't found any issues in finding undervalued securities. Um, we just have to be flexible and find them wherever they may be. And that lack of uh, IPO activity and also the continuation of M&A should continue to shrink this pool. Brian, any additional thoughts on, on the lower amount of companies that are available out there and, and likely to be out there going forward? That's where the lower cost of capital is. Now, if you're Uber, I mean, people are throwing money at you. Why go public? Now, think about Amazon. Amazon, exactly. And one observation on that is uh, where you've seen a lot of IPOs has been a lot of very early stage biotechs and very early stage growth companies. They used to be areas where venture capital was investing. And given this change in cost of capital, that the, for them it might be more, more profitable or more 
opportunistic to go to the capital markets and become a public company very early in the stage relative to where they, when they used to. So those are a couple of the different factors that are out there, but I think Brian's observation is ultimately what matters to us. This is cyclical. They're very long cycles, but they are cyclical. So in, in thinking about this lower number of stocks that are available for investment, I guess it kind of leads to the active-passive debate. Um, this is a debate that I've been having uh, quite a number of conversations with our clients out in the in the public. And if you look at small cap core, the, the category, uh, it's, out, it's underperformed, I should say, the Russell 2000 each and every year since 2009. And, and this year so far, they're underperforming as a category yet again. But you both have been able to bunk that trend. So if you could kind of walk me through some of the challenges that active managers see in the small cap space and how you've been able to differentiate yourselves from most managers. Yeah, I mean, the issue of liquidity has been a very, very large one. As the number of companies in the market has declined uh, to now a little over 3,000, the Russell 2000, which is the 2,000 stocks below the top 1,000, mm-hmm. has become uh, much more um, bifurcated. The top... Uh, the top market caps are still around three, four billion, but the bottom market caps are going much, much lower. Okay. Because they don't, because now even the smallest public companies are getting sucked into the top three thousand. So that makes a pretty serious challenge for active managers who have assets of any size at all, because uh, there's just no liquidity in in the micro caps to speak of. And right. so we've seen, uh, if you, you know, check Morningstar's assessment of what they call micro cap, uh, holdings in the index versus holdings in active management, the index is almost a third, a little over a third micro cap and active managers are single digits. Oh, wow. So as if those, that, that just means there's going to be tracking error between active management and, and the index. Uh, when they outperform, active managers sort of by definition underperform. Uh, we have managed to keep our weight about a third in micro caps in what, as Morningstar defines it, uh, it's not necessarily intentional. We don't see cap advantage as being a, a, an active management feature. It's just we, we're still trying to look throughout the entire scope of the market because we want the most investment opportunities we can get. As, as assets accrue, that does become more difficult. Uh, the second thing that, that that indexes take advantage of is they're buying everything indiscriminately in the market. And as Albert said earlier, we've seen a lot more preclinical biotech companies coming public. That's not an asset class that suits itself very well to active management selection. In general, asset managers are not doctors. They're not making calls on what preclinical drug is going to be a a blockbuster 10 years from now, and they're usually not willing to wait that long to invest. Right. So uh, they don't select from that pool. They're very regularly underweight biotech. I have been for the last 10 years. The index invests in everything, so they will buy that automatically. Now, that may be a good or bad decision. We won't know. For for most of these companies, we're not going to know for a long time. Uh, But what we do know is they've chosen to go public because – the cost of capital was lower for them public than it was private in in the case of preclinical biotech. So index investors are investing in a lot of things that are pretty speculative that I I think they may not realize uh, they're they're overweighting as much as they are. Uh, And that's true generally for money losing companies in the index. There are more money losing companies now than there there were 10, 
15, 20 years ago. I think the number is close to 30% of the index. Yes. So uh, again, that's an, that's an area where active managers generally are lower weighted. Uh, we, as it happens, have a, 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 we over-index to money-losing companies, not for any intentional reason, but because we we will look through current losses to future gains for companies that are making big investments in the future. We, we own some biotech companies that are speculative, but uh, no preclinical or anything like that. Where we tend to find better ideas in money-losing companies are those that are uh, engaged in very profitable value-creating projects, but to do so, they're spending money up front, and they're going to realize the value on the back end. Now, do, do you have an example of one of these money-losing companies that um, that fit this yeah, bill? Yes, we do. Uh, and before I go to the examples, there, there are two particular cases. There are high-growth companies that have a lot of growth opportunities that are investing for the future, as well as companies that are losing money because of cyclical nature of their business. So th- those two categories fit into why we have invested in those companies. Um, the the one example I use, we've used this many times, is a company called 2U. Okay. Uh, it's a company that provides infrastructure and platform for graduate programs, for university to offer graduate degrees online. These are equivalent graduate pro- degrees that you one would earn by going on campus. These are not... Uh, what we used to hear about online schools. Like Trump University or? Not quite those. <laughs> this is the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, oh, wow. and uh, uh, Berkeley. and um, High-profile schools. High-profile schools that have a, a big reputation and uh, big issues if they, if they stumble on this. So they've chosen to you to be a partner. Uh, contracts at least 10 years. So upfront to invest in the past few years, 9 to $12 million in advance to create the, the content, the program, and to create the marketing funnel to bring leads to the school. The schools are responsible for admissions, for educating the students and conferring the degrees, while two is responsible for bringing the students and managing the infrastructure. So this is an example for us when we calculate the value of each program. Uh, it's highly positive. That investment is a highly positive, positive return, but it does take time. So the more contracts they sign, the more successful they they become. In the near term, they're losing more money. Right. In our opinion, very clearly, they're creating more value. And that is, oh, that's one example of why we invest in a company that objectively is a money-losing company today. In our opinion, is a value-creating company, and that's uh, what will be proven over time. Well, what's interesting is if you wait till the company's actually making money, yep. the value is probably out of the stock share price and mm-hmm. you yep. probably find better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. And if I may, I'd like to add one point to Brian's answer on, on, on the question of what we've done differently. It's not anything different. It's what we've done since this strategy started in 2009, which is set out to find un, what we believe to be undervalued companies across the small cap spectrum. And as a core mandate, we do go from value to steady companies to high growth companies. Uh, What we've done, uh, and in my opinion, we've done well, is we've looked broadly enough at all times and find out wherever the undervalued opportunities may be. So we've been able to distinguish ourselves, whether it be owning smaller companies, whether it be owning companies that lose money, high growth, low growth companies, just simply by that, actively looking at a very large set of candidates and being completely agnostic to what the label may be. Sure. So we're really not trying to figure out, uh, I guess, in the parlance of horse racing, which would make analogies sometimes, 
We're not trying to find out which horse is going to win the race. We're trying to find out which horse the odds are set lower than our fundamental work would suggest that horse to be likely to win the race or how it should be valued. Or show or place, and yep. you, you can still win some you money. You can still win plenty a lot of money. money. A lot of money. And, uh, and it's just the odds that are set by the market as opposed to uh, we don't need to find the next Google in small caps, but we would want to find the next Google if it's not being valued as the next Google. Right. Well, one, you know, I want to kind of go back to this large cap outperformance versus small cap. You, you Again, you've seen quite a large deviation here. I think year to date, it's up about 7% on a relative perspective. You know, what factors are in play here? And does that impact your approach right now? I, I think we're alluding to it, but... Yeah, I'll take that. We believe there are a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities for growth. The question is just how are they valued? So uh, our job is just that, locate where the undervalued opportunities may be. Uh, understand the risks that we're taking and manage the portfolio exposures that way. I, I think it, it obviously it does impact flows. Um, uh, different investors will have different opinions of which group should lead and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, th- the way I see, if I had to give an explanation, is you saw a lot of uh, assumptions after the election uh, because small caps tend to be more domestically focused, sure pay did. much higher taxes that a tax regime change would really benefit small caps, so that got discounted into stocks, uh, or things such as spending, domestic spending in, in infrastructure and things like that, that got di- discounted, and in our opinion, overly discounted. We actually um, eliminated several positions as a result of that. And I'm Selling on, on strength. Yeah, in the beginning of the year, especially in materials and in metals, there were positions that we owned that we thought were discounting, an extremely high probability of um, of spending in infrastructure as well as likely uh, lower taxes. We also we also reduced our our uh, bank exposure because they had run especially hard on the prospect of uh, higher interest rates, higher long term interest rates, uh, providing a, a bigger uh, spread margin on their on their lending business. Right. And, and uh, we thought that was premature and, and that uh, valuations had gone from being pretty high to being very, very high. And so we, uh, we cut back quite a bit on our banks. We, we were very selective about what we owned. Um, and so far, that's, that's been uh, the right place to be because uh, they've given back a lot of that performance. And one red flag um, that, that you both have uh, risen is small cap earnings and their failure to keep up with multiple expansion here. You know, what is kind of causing that disconnect? And as an active small cap manager, how can you avoid it? Well, as as Albert says, we, we think of everything about valuation in terms of expectations. So we, we try to break down the economic value creation that's going on and the ec- economic value creation that's expected for each company. So when their earnings aren't going up, and especially the cash flows aren't going up as much as the multiple is, that means that the market participants in general are expecting higher returns in the future than what they're getting now. Similar to late 2016. Yeah, and higher than they used to expect. So, yeah, exactly. When when the valuations go up, they're implying, okay, we're going to see we're going to see margins improve. We're going to see uh, you know invested capital uh, uh, go down or or going to earn higher returns in the future on an incremental basis than they are now. Uh, and again, we don't, we don't try to say that that's right or wrong. We just, we just want to measure what the expectations are and how realistic they are given 
what we've seen in the past, what we know about management, what we think of the competitive strategy of the industry. So, you know, we're constantly taking a fundamental valuation approach. And I, I think it's the case that the market in general tends to move on a more thematic basis than a fundamental valuation basis. People feel good. They feel like prospects are getting better. The market goes up. Maybe the prospect, maybe the valuations or the earnings did not follow through to the same degree as they'd expected, but they still feel good. So the markets can go up more. Uh, and, you know, I think we've been through that for a few years, you know, in the post crisis, uh, investing was a lot of fun. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. All you needed was for the the world not to come to an end, you know, for the United States not to fall completely into chaos to make money on, on the market. Expe- expectations were, were low. Expectations were super, super low. So uh, that made it very easy to find companies that were going to outperform. Um, now it's a lot trickier. It's it's a lot more of a of a of a of a rifle shot market. You know, for the example of banks, we think in general, I, I, at least I can say I think in general, small cap banks are pretty overvalued given their uh, their prospects for NIM expansion and and investment. Uh, however, there are certain banks that are different or have a have some unique characteristic that makes them worth more than I think the market thinks they're worth. So as long as we stick to our valuation work and small cap market offers a, a plethora of opportunities, you know, you, you, if you don't like 10 stocks, you can like the 11th and everything's fine. You know, we don't have to worry as much about those five big companies that are going to outperform and assess whether like we're large cap managers have to. Exactly. So we, we can, we can maneuver a lot more, uh, in the small cap market and, uh, and find the few things that have still expectations below what we think they ought to be. Now, now it sounds like, you know, I've, I've heard you use a term before, uh, quite often. It sounds like you're describing variant, uh, perception, uh, and, and how you guys view a stock price and what's in, reflected in the underlying growth and, uh, and earnings trend there. Albert, can you elaborate a little bit on that and tell me how you use it in evaluating companies? As, as both Brian and I described, starting point is understanding what the market is expecting within a wide range, within different combinations of the future of a certain company. Ultimately, for us to invest, we are stating that we have a different conclusion, a different opinion what the market has concluded. So we go basically three steps in our process. The first step is understanding those embedded expectations. It starts with the price of a stock. So to us, those are facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, then thinking probabilistic of the, of the range of possible outcomes, uh, those are opinions uh, of what may happen, and and ultimately we need judgment to reach a conclusion to build and manage our portfolio and understand the risks that we're taking. So you haven't come to that foregone conclusion. You're saying a number of different ways that this path can go, and you're right. assessing it from there. So the variant perception is really on that opinion portion of the process. Uh, why do we believe we reach a different conclusion than the market has? It is important because it is, by what I just said, is the reason why we invest in a certain company. Uh, and it is what we track over time to understand how things are developing fundamentally as well as with respect to how the companies are being valued and discounted in the marketplace. And it is the basis of our assessment of our previous and ongoing decisions. So there will be times, next time will not be the first time that we've been wrong in this stock. 
and understanding what we believe to be our varying perception and how things evolve, it allows us to dispassionately have a decision. We've been wrong and we may sell or we whatever we need to correct. It also has allowed us over time to update our range of valuations. So we have had, uh, over the course of the life of this strategy, many stocks have performed well beyond our initial expectations. And our holding of these positions over the long term is not simply a decision of, oh, we've been right and we're going to continue to be right. That's not how we invest. We, again, reassess what the range of values will be now that we have new information. And that if we still have a varying perception, we've continued to own. So that's why we believe is important. It really grounds us. Uh, We believe that market inefficiencies are created by behavior errors. Right. Uh, and having a, very, a stated, quantifiable, and falsifiable fair and perception is one way for us to try to avoid making those mistakes ourselves as well as exploit those mistakes make, that are made by the market at large. Yeah, and to kind of give a, 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 a general example of what he's what Albert's saying, we'll take a look at market price and sort of assess what is the market thinking about the incremental return on invested capital for this company, how much capital they're going to be able to put to work at that rate. And when we do our work, we're working on a probabilistic basis. So we're trying to think on a number of different scenarios over the next 10 years, what do we think the return on incremental invested capital will be and, and how much capital they can invest. And if we can come to a point where we say, well, you know what, we think that the investment opportunities at really good returns are much better than the market thinks for this company on average over a, over a wide range of scenarios. We think then the odds of outperformance are, are better than if we do our fundamental work with you know competitive strategy work and decide, you know, the market's actually pretty accurate on what the incremental return on invested capital is going to be for this company. Uh, as Albert said before, the analogy we used is horse racing. It's not about whether the horse can win or not. It's the odds that you're being offered right. for the horse, the horse to win. You know, a horse may be very likely to win, ninety percent to win, but if he's being priced as ninety-five percent chance he's going to win, then it's not worth it. Yeah. Uh, so we're just constantly measuring our view of the fundamental probability of a company outperforming under a wide range of scenarios versus the markets. Well, if you think about most managers, they just have quantitative factors or variables that they put into their process, and they don't really think about those qualitative or those behavioral factors um, in, in trying to assess what's going to happen with the stock. And why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that most, more managers don't adopt that type of framework? Well, I don't know. And that's why we need our investment process to keep us in check. You know, we, we need to say, okay, I really love the setup for this company, their competitive uh, position is fantastic. The barriers to entry are high. Everything looks great. Now I need to I need to pull back and check that against what the odds I'm being offered are. And one thing that we do, um, not that others don't either, but one thing that we believe we do slightly different is how we work as a team. There are three of us that are dedicated to, the, to this process and this product. And um, as Brian said, it, it's avoiding those behavior errors. And Research is very clear. It's much easier to see errors made by others than yourself. Mm-hmm. So working together, and I don't mean uh, working together, meaning we working separately on different ideas and coming together. We are actively working on individual stock ideas and the management of the portfolio as a team and making decisions together. That has helped us uh, avoid some of those mistakes as well. And I, I guess the additional comment I would make is 
these are behavior errors in the in, in the investment world that we're observing here. They are not that different than any other parts of human society, and people make mistakes in you know, in a lot of places that economics or other sciences would suggest they shouldn't be making, but they continue to do. Uh, and I, in an ideal world, we'll avoid making our mistakes and taking advantage of some that are in the marketplace. Yeah, that's a it's a great point Albert brings up. It's it's very easy for Albert to get excited about something and then it's very easy for me to come and throw cold water on it <laughs> and vice versa. And so, you know, the the I think a lot of investment managers feel like there's one decider and there are other people giving them inputs. First among equals. First among equals. Uh, I think the way we operate in, uh, you know, our we have a dedicated analyst and he has the same role that Albert and I do to tell us when he thinks we're full of crap and uh, and to provide us the opportunity to tell him he's full of crap. Well, and I think that's that's important because that's the way that you can understand the stock more thoroughly. You're not just finding things that uh, you know, akin to you, what your thoughts are. You're, you're finding out the bear case scenario and, and more fully understanding a situation. With each thing we, we invest in, there's a barrage of questions being being directed all around. And, and this also goes back to your earlier question of how this strategy has been able to perform well over the, over the last many years. Um, and, and one of the reasons, in my opinion, has been this, working as a team and having different opinions, different biases that will lead us to look at undervalued opportunities in different areas of the market. So we've been able to make some changes in the portfolio at different times that led to our performance in the future. And that was only possible because people had uh, different approaches uh, from and just how they see the world. And we we really do have uh, among the the three of us in the team is not we do have diverse backgrounds and that's interesting and nice but it's really the cognitive diversity we approach problems differently and uh, and that's what's led to different opportunities at different times so we um, we we greatly appreciate that uh, and you you mentioned the portfolio so you know right now where are you finding opportunities and, and maybe give us a couple of examples that demonstrate how you put that portfolio construction together that those diverse backgrounds and, and putting together a, an actual strategy yeah it's it's been it's been a tough market as I say to uh, to find uh, good investments in and they and most of them have been very one-off kinds of things uh, usually having to do with some um, market theme that's going the wrong way whether it be uh, energy uh, either dropping dramatically in response to slightly lower oil or rising sharply in response to you know slightly higher oil uh we've we've played both sides of that trade a couple of times uh and now it's more in the in the downside so that's a, that's a place where we've been actively looking um a few like uh, one-off opportunities in small industries like mortgage insurance uh which for 8 years since the crisis has been writing <laughs> just gold-plated uh, insurance, uh, you know, where the credit is fantastic and the rates are strong. Uh, losses have been super low and they continue to be very low as the banks still are very careful about lending compared to how they were in the in the 2000s. And now they're working under a, a capital regime where they almost can't be aggressive in lending at the, at the moment. So that'll, that cycle will turn at some point, but right now the mortgage insurers are writing fantastic paper and, and they're going to experience lo- losses lower than what the market believes according to their stock prices. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, container industry went through a major cycle. This Abra was talking about how sometimes we'll go into the, the more value, deep value cyclical. kind of area, cyclical. Um, we found at the beginning of 16, uh, the market expectations were for those companies to go bankrupt. And I, I think it was largely because the market was not properly assessing the likelihood of their bankruptcy realizing that most of their paper is um, is asset-backed. So it would not tied be... Tied to those containers. Exactly, tied to the containers. So they were not facing real liquidity risk because they can stop buying anytime they want. And they their uh, leases were all more or less good. We had one shipping bankruptcy that cost a, a small amount of money, uh, but for the most part, those assets are money good. And uh, so we found opportunities there. Well, they were basically pricing anything cyclically related uh, going out of business yes. back in early 16. That is correct. I, I mean, I, but that that anomaly has continued into this year for some of the some of the shipping companies. Yeah, uh, I would add uh, one aspect to to the answer, and it relates to the at the portfolio level and thinking of how we manage the portfolio and understanding risk. And the point here is diversification. Uh, so for us, we are not investing solely based on what we believe the upside to be of a company. That is an important factor. But we are trying to understand with individual candidates, what do they bring and what do they do to the portfolio as a whole in terms of diversifying the risk that we take. Again, uh, we know one thing and one thing only, is, which is we cannot predict the future. We, we like to think we can. Uh, we try to. That's Assumance. one behavior error that we try to avoid, and then we call each other out when we seem to be uh, implying a, a certain future. But uh, we know that for sure. And again, the probabilistic approach comes from that. So it's not just about the degree of undervaluation of an individual security, because at times that can lead to not understanding the exposures you may have on the overall portfolio. So we like to think of the economic drivers that are behind each of the companies we own. Difficult to measure because companies are in multiple businesses, but in general, you can gain an understanding. What happens at times, Brian has given examples, or I usually use the example of housing. If there are concerns about the housing market and, and you will find securities that have high upside, if that's incorrect, across many sectors, across many, many industries. And if all you're doing is investing for the highest upside, you may be overly more exposed to that than you would willing to do if you were aware of that. And if it turns out that that's not the future, that the future you predicted is not the one that plays out, that might be a risk that you are not willing to take. So we are really thinking uh, at the individual security level and at the portfolio level of diversification as well as the upside. So we think about diversifying across those economic drivers that we talked about. We also think of the correlation of each individual security to the overall portfolio. On the flip side, we have situations, whether it be a real estate investment trust company that uh, is involved in a lot of consumer, I guess classified as retail, retail but yeah. uh, as a retail REIT, but it really has much broader exposure. Uh, whether it be that or it be electric, uh, regulated electric utility or many other examples where the upside wasn't that high, but uh, but it was high enough that it would be a decent return over a period of time. And when we look at what it did to the portfolio in terms of diversification and protecting us if the world was not exactly uh, the one we dreamed of in the, in the next 12 months, 
uh, that would have its role in the portfolio. So that's how we've managed since the inception of the product. We are not just going to go where the highest potential upside is. And it gives you a much more well-rounded portfolio that can participate in you know, whatever environment the, the market may throw at us. We, we talk about our goal, which is to deliver a resilient portfolio. And um, we believe to date we have done. And this is one of the reasons we've been able to do so. Yeah, we're, we're frequently asked uh, under what market conditions we believe we would underperform. And, and uh, our we we don't we don't know the answer to that because we've had market conditions high very high returns and very uh, momentum driven market in the last few years and we've outperformed we I think we both would have said prior to this run that those are the conditions under which we'd underperform so um, we hope that the answer to that question is there isn't any particular environment we will underperform from time to time for sure just it it won't be predictable because of our style because we really try very uh, we concentrate very hard on not having a style we just want higher expected value than the market well great well albert brian thank you so much for for taking the time and joining me here today thank you thank you and thank you everybody for for dialing in here hope everybody had a great labor day and we'll look forward to seeing you on future podcasts thanks please note the following past performance is no guarantee of future results The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of September 5th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. 